I wonder what comes to your mind when I say that we're starting a series in the book of Revelation. I sort of know because there was sort of a, a flicker of laughter and, and, and a lot of smiling out there when I mentioned it. Um, and unfortunately, all through the history of the church, um, it's been the habit of many people simply to ignore the book, except maybe the last few chapters, you know, the new heaven and the new earth and no more tears and death and sickness and all the rest. But we like that, um, but we don't like a lot of the other stuff. Equally, uh, unfortunately, all through the history of the church, um, it has been the habit of many others to absolutely obsess with the book of Revelation, uh, trying to work out what all the little details and all the symbolism means, trying to line it up with world events, working out who the Antichrist might be, um, usually heavily influenced by their own political position, um, whether it's the Pope or Hitler or Donald Trump or Mussolini or Barack Obama or Elon Musk or the brain chip. This is one I read this week. The brain chip that Elon Musk um, has developed apparently has the mark of the beast, according to some. Some people try and link these events to, to Israel in some way. And if you do some fancy mathematics with the date they were born, multiplied by the number of votes they got, divided by the square root of their age when they came to power, to the power of one over the number of followers they have on Twitter, then you get the number 666, and that proves it, apparently. Honestly, if there's someone famous who you think is a bit sinister, just you know, Google it, and someone online will tell you that they are the beast, and they'll have done the maths to prove it. And we can laugh about that um, ourselves and then cry because it's true. But what this does, it, it, it leads us to just avoid the book of Revelation, and that is a real pity. Naomi read for us from Revelation 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Naomi, you are especially blessed among us this evening because you have read the words aloud, and we are blessed by you doing that. Now, when I was at Union College, I did a module on Revelation. Now, this does not make me the expert, far, far from it, but I do want to share with you one thing uh, from the very first lecture that is easy to remember and that will help you read the book of Revelation. And I know you have it all, it's all spoiled in front of you. I was going to leave blank spaces for you to fill it in, but then what if you don't have pens and all that sort of stuff? But this is known as Gordon's handy guide to the book of Revelation. Gordon is the very knowledgeable Reverend Professor Gordon Campbell, um, who said that we could have this, by the way, so I am using it with um, permission, but it's literally a handy tool. You need your hand um, to do it. And it comes with a made-up word, and that word is lapau, okay? Now, if you ever watched the old Batman or any of those old things when they kind of strike somebody and you get kapow coming up across the screen, it's kind of like that, only it's lapau, not kapow. Yeah, that's the, that maybe gives you an insight into Gordon's mind. But we'll start with, with the little finger anyway. L is for letter. L is for letter. Revelation is a letter. In, cha in chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings on earth so that this is a letter it's just like in some ways a letter of Paul okay the contents are are quite different but if you read Paul's letters this is what you get at the start you get Paul to the church in wherever 
and he gives a greeting, grace and peace to you. And so John does this. John to the seven churches, grace and peace to you. So it's a letter. And it's actually really important not to lose sight of that. Even when we're trying to interpret tricky stuff, you know, it's not just weird and confusing stuff about the end times. Some of it is that. But it was written to churches in the late first century. It's a particular letter to a particular people at a particular time. It's a time when Christians are entering a period of extreme persecution. Uh, John was exiled to Patmos for his missionary work. Uh, Specifically, the, the authorities were beginning to enforce this law that required people to worship the emperor. But the Christians said that Jesus was Lord, not the emperor. So they were facing a lot of oppression. And we'll see that through the letters over the next number of weeks. In fact, in two weeks' time, we'll, we'll see that some in the church were even proposing that Christians should maybe compromise a bit. But the Lord gives John this revelation, and John writes about it, to encourage his readers to resist, to resist emperor worship, to stand firm in all kinds of trials. He tells them that the final showdown between God and Satan is going to happen, and that will involve increased persecution, yes, I even martyred him, but they must stand firm because their victory is sealed and they will be vindicated when Christ returns and the wicked are destroyed and God's people enter into an eternity of glory and blessing. So it is a letter. It's a letter written to specific people in history to encourage them. Look, you're going to have a hard time, but this is what's coming. God is going to defeat Satan. The lamb is on the throne. Keep going stand firm to the end. So when you're lost in the middle of Revelation, it's helpful to remember that. A then is for apocalyptic. It comes, um, apocalypse is the first word um, of the Greek text, which translated into English through Latin is Revelation. So that's how the, the book gets its name. But it's apocalyptic writing. It's a specific type of literature. And it, this writing, it's, it's very symbolic. It seems bizarre to us almost at times, but it means that we can't obsess about the details and we do need to always remember the big picture. We're not actually meant to analyze the details and I know that that kind of goes against the grain sometimes when we're studying the Bible. We think we need to look at the details, we need to look at exactly what way Jesus said it and and some people do preoccupy themselves with the details and they get tied up with things But, but it actually misses the point. All those details are there to give us a big picture and that's what we're meant to see. People get tied up with whether the events happened in the first century and they've already happened, or if they're a long chain of events from the first century up until the end of time, um, or whether they're just going to happen at the end of time. They try to work out what has happened and what hasn't happened. Some people even say, look, it's actually a chain of repeating events. So when you have somebody like Babylon falling, well, okay, that's Babylon in the Old Testament. Um, It's going to be the Roman Empire and then other empires after that. And, you know, even through to things like Nazi Germany and different regimes in in modern times. Still other people think that it's, it's just a circular thing, that actually John just sees one event, but he sees it from lots of different perspectives. And you can get tied up in the midst of all that. And I was reading a commentary earlier in the week by a man called Robert Mounts. I mean, he talks about all these different views, and, and he simply says this at the end. He says, fortunately, the fundamental truths of Revelation do not depend on adopting a particular point of view. They are available to anyone who will read the book for its overall message and resist the temptation to to become excessively 
enamored with the details. You'll get a lot out of Revelation simply by being willing to read it and to try and pick out the big truths. When I walked into that class in Union College, I thought, great, he's going to tell us what it all means. I'm finally going to understand this book. And I was disappointed. He didn't. He didn't. But with good reason, because Revelation is apocalyptic. All these details paint a big picture, and we're meant to see that, these big truths. We won't see loads of this in the letters, but, but it's important, and I want to encourage you that, that the book is readable. So it's a letter, it's apocalyptic, and P is for prophetic. This point is short, but it's still important. Whilst we said the language is apocalyptic and symbolic, um, this symbolism still describes events that are real. Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So it is symbolic, but it is describing real events. Are you still with me? Some of you are with me. Okay, letter, apocalyptic, prophetic, O is for Old Testament. Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament. There are hundreds upon hundreds of Old Testament references in the book. You could make an academic career out of exploring them, and people have done that. Now, even in what Naomi read for us, she turned to see the voice speaking, or he turned to see the voice speaking, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Every one of those descriptors matches up to the Old Testament. I have a lot of it written out in front of me, but I'm wary um, of time. But even if you go back to Daniel 7, where Daniel sees the Son of Man, what does he say about the Ancient of Days? His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. And there's fire. The fire represents the presence of God in the tabernacle. Jesus' feet are like burnished bronze. And what is made of burnished bronze in the Old Testament? The instruments in the tabernacle. Again, it's representing the fact that uh, Jesus represents the presence of God. The sound of many waters in the voice that comes from Isaiah 11, which is a scripture you know, but you maybe don't know that you know. It's the one that says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, the spirit will be upon them. But it says, with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And it goes on to describe this judgment like many waters, waters sweeping over people, and he will make a way through these great waters for his people to enter the promised land, just as God did for Moses. And that is what Jesus is speaking. He's speaking this judgment, which will result in disaster for those who are outside of him, but glory for those who trust in him. So Revelation is full of these images from the Old Testament. Sorry, I've flown through that. We're going to see that later in the first letter. But the more that we're aware of the influence of the Old Testament, the better we'll understand Revelation. And then finally is the thumb. Letter, apocalyptic, prophetic, Old Testament. W is for worship. And that really is the crux of the whole thing. Yes, Revelation is full of worship. Some famous passages, you know, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things 
and by your will they existed and were created. But many scholars, including Gordon, and I agree with him, say that one of the keys to Revelation is worship. Even all the weird stuff, even all the wacky, wonderful stuff, the judgment, all of that is meant to drive us to worship. It's meant to point us to how holy God is, how right his judgments are, how perfect he is. We sang it earlier, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, and yet we come we come and we praise. I, I, I mentioned those words a moment ago about a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And, and amongst those words are words of judgment. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. That's pretty, pretty dramatic that he will slay the wicked. But what's the response of that? It's worship. Isaiah 12, verse 1, in that day you will say, in that day, the day of the wicked being slain, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It goes on, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Sing aloud and sing for joy. That's showing that Revelation is about worship, but also um, is steeped in the Old Testament. So the very fact that Revelation is mysterious is meant to point us to the one who's beyond ourselves. And our response, the only right response before our king is worship. I've flown through that. Gordon took about an hour to do that. So I've flown through that. But letter, so we can and should read it. Apocalyptic, it's symbolic. Prophetic, it's real events. Old Testament, helps us to understand it, and worship. Worship is the whole point of it. So I hope you feel slightly more ready to tackle the book of Revelation. And if you want to turn again to the little handout there, um, I know a few of you didn't get one and are are using the Pew Bibles. It's on page one, two, three, four of the Pew Bible. But we're going to uh, continue reading in Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 19 through to 2, verse 7. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of heaven, uh, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and find them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, as we come now to uh, delve into this letter, we pray simply 
that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would have your way with us, and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've had a bit of a whistle-stop tour through uh, Revelation. Um, it's a lot later than I thought it was going to be at this stage, so I apologize for that, and I'll, I'll, I'll not try to speak too quickly, but I'll also not say anything I don't need to say. Um, I wonder what you think of when you hear the words, first love. Maybe you think of your first boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe for you it's a subject. I mean, I know for me, my first love was music. I can remember standing outside my uh, dining room door while my mum sat inside playing the piano at age about, I don't know, two or three. And if she ever caught me sitting there, she came over slightly grumpily and slammed the door because she didn't like the idea of me listening to her. But I just loved listening to her play and, and then that developed. But any relationship or, or any talent or, 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 or interest like that requires work, doesn't it? And you find that out after a while, after, after the love isn't new any longer. In fact, um, the ESV translates that phrase, first love, as the love you had at first, which is maybe slightly more helpful. It's not necessarily the very first love you ever had, because that might have been for something else. But Jesus is talking about the love that people have for him at first. I wonder what it's like for you or what it was like for you when you first became a believer and a follower of Jesus. What did it feel like? For me, I remember, you know, I was somebody who had come to church and, and had prayed and had done all these things, but suddenly all of that was alive to me. These people that I saw on a Sunday no longer were just the people I saw on a Sunday. I really loved them and I, and I couldn't explain really why that had changed and I, and I loved reading the scriptures and I, and I loved praying. It wasn't a duty anymore and the words and the songs came alive to me. It was quite intense at first. But I wonder how the Apostle John would have felt when he first heard these words from this first letter because John had actually pastored the church in Ephesus. We can read about the church being planted in Acts uh, chapters 18 to 20. We did look at it together um, weeks and weeks ago. Paul plants this church with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and, and he leaves, um, and the other two nurture this young church, but then Paul returns, and he spends almost three years there, which is the longest he spent in any of the churches he planted. But Paul has to leave quite suddenly. Uh, Christianity is bad for business at the pagan temples, and there's a riot, so Paul leaves. But then he sends Timothy, and Timothy's in charge. Now, some time later, Timothy is murdered by, he's murdered by the Romans, and, and church historians tell us then that John himself went to pastor that church. Paul, Timothy, the Apostle John, I mean, that's, that's some list on the side of your pulpit if you think about it. But his ears must have pricked up when he heard that this first letter was going to be the church in Ephesus, his church. He's been exiled, but it's his people. But as much as he's probably excited, he was probably also a little bit scared because these words that Jesus uses, and, and they're translated here as the words of him who, are actually very significant words in the Greek. They're words that were used in the Old Testament more than 250 times. They are the equivalent of thus saith, almost always followed by the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And I'm using Old English there for a reason because even by the time John was writing Revelation, those words were out of use. 
They were old language. They weren't used anymore. But these are the words that Jesus uses when he's speaking to John. It would be as if I started reading from the King James Bible up here. A lot of the words in them are words we don't use anymore, but it just gives the whole thing a bigger level of seriousness, doesn't it? I mean, these are prophetic words. They're words from the Lord, from Yahweh himself. This is serious. This is why, and I'll not go off on one here because I could, but this is why I like singing old words to old hymns, because it just sounds better, in my opinion. I was uh, being nudged in the ribs earlier today when we were singing Rock of Ages because I was singing the old words. And I said, well, the Lord Jesus in Revelation used the old words but that didn't cut it. But it's a feeling of seriousness. It's a feeling of weight, isn't it? Thus saith, oh, he's going to say something important here. And things start off well. It's a congregation with this great legacy of Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, John, and the church historians tell us that Jesus' mother Mary worshipped there, and that makes sense. Jesus on the cross asked John to look after his mother. Can you imagine the carol service? John preaching, Mary's right there, or maybe the nativity maybe would be more exciting than the carol service. What a church, what a church. And Jesus starts off by saying these amazing things. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You find them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. He also says later on that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates, and we'll come back to that. So there's, there's been a lot of good about Ephesus. They've good activity, their works, their toil, their pace and endurance. This is a busy church, lots of programs running. They're, they're busy serving the Lord. And there's, there's groups meeting, maybe studying the Bible together. They've got good doctrine, you know, they can't bear with those who are evil. They've tested people who said they were apostles. They found them to be false. They've got all their ducks in a row. They hate the Nicolaitans and, and they were false teachers of some kind. We're not sure exactly who they were. So they've got all their theological ducks in a row. They've subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith or whatever the equivalent was in the first century. And they've got good endurance. Verse three, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. Ephesus is a hard place to be a Christian and these guys are standing up. It was the fourth largest Roman city. There are numerous temples to other gods around, particularly the fertility goddess Artemis or Diana, depending what language you're working in. And these worshipers of this fertility goddess, they have very dubious sexual ethics from a Christian point of view. It was difficult to be a Christian there. You were persecuted. You really stood out like a sore thumb. And these Christians are doing well, so it seems. But then things take a bit of a turn, and John must have inhaled quite sharply when he heard this. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a really strong statement. You've abandoned the love you had at first. The NIV says you have forsaken your first love. 
And we need to understand this isn't just kind of like a lack of um, spiritual temperature or something, you know, it's, it's just got a bit boring in that church and, or people aren't very passionate, you know, nobody lifts their hands in worship, but, you know, you've kind of lost that intensity of love. That's not what Jesus is saying. The word that Jesus uses there, which is abandoned, is a word associated with divorce. It's a word associated with divorce in Greek. And in, in, in this statement, Jesus says, look, you, ha- you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's just so far removed from you. You don't have it anymore. You're separate from it. Quite stark. John must have, as I say, had a big intake of breath. But I think there are two issues the Lord is addressing in Ephesus. And the first is simply that he's calling the people not to let the wrong things become their God. Do not let the wrong things become your God. The first thing is activity. You know, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. He knows that they're busy people. And it's not that any of of these things are bad. You know, it was Jesus himself who said, let your works, the same word, shine before men that they may see your good works. Or let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. These people are busy. But sometimes, just sometimes, the busiest people in a church are the people who are furthest from the Lord. You know, I, I only discovered when I went to college and chatted to other people and like what they were involved in in their church, just how much I was involved at my church. And I hadn't even realized it because I'm the sort of person that finds it difficult to say no to things. Um, and, and I remember sitting in college one day and they said, well, what are you doing in church this week? So I told them. On Monday, I was out at the bowls. Now, that, that's, that's pretty you know, low-key. That's pretty fun. That's okay. Um, but, you know, I, I was the treasurer, so actually I did have quite a lot of responsibility there. And then on Tuesday after my music lesson, which I still went to at that stage, um, oh, yes, on Tuesday afternoon, I came out of university early to set up um, a film night for the GB. I came and set up the screen and the speakers and all the rest of it, put all the chairs out. They'd asked me to do that. So then I went to my music lesson, and after I came back, you know, thankfully it was all working, and I took that all down and went home and then on Wednesday I was out at the midweek and I was playing the piano with that. On Thursday I was at BB from sort of half six to about 11 at night. I was an officer there and then on Friday there was some sort of other event on. Do you know what? I can't even remember by this stage. Um, But Saturday was kind of my one day off except this week when um, we were doing a car wash and which was raising money for people who were going away on mission so I was in the midst of all that and then on Sunday I was down early. I was doing the sound at the morning and the evening service and I was leading the youth fellowship and I was doing a talk at that. That was my week. Okay I think I, I I I had maybe Friday night off, I don't remember exactly. But I remember going through this with my friends and they were like, that is not good for you. And I thought, why? This is good. I'm, I'm helping people. It's all, you know, it's all good. It's all serving the Lord. But if I'm honest, looking back at that time, that was not a time when I was particularly close in my walk with the Lord. Sometimes the busiest people in church are those who are furthest from the Lord. It can happen. It can happen that you actually get so caught up with doing stuff for the Lord that that becomes your God and you miss God in the midst of it. Maybe just right now at the start of a new church year, as as Angela was saying, is the time to think, before I get stuck back into all of this, who is my God? 
The second thing that Jesus warns them about, or, or the second potential false god that there is, is doctrine. I've already mentioned it. I know people in the church for whom doctrine is their god. I, I, I've come across people occasionally, and I think for them it's more important to be sound than it is to be saved, genuinely. I mean, the, maybe you know people like this, maybe you don't. But don't get caught up in doctrine. Paul writes to, to Timothy um, in, in 1 Timothy, he says, look, don't, don't get caught up in, in, in squabbles and debates about genealogies and things that are irrelevant. And it's very easy to do that um, as Christians. It might be about you know, the, the mode of baptism. It might be about predestination. You, you name the doctrine, somebody will disagree about it. That's okay. That's okay. We're Presbyterians, so we're right, but it's okay. But it's more important to look at Jesus than it is to look at any of those doctrines. I say that in jest. We probably have all sorts of things wrong. That's okay too. That's okay too. We interpret the Bible as best as we can under God. But don't make doctrine your God. And then activism. Again, this, this isn't quite the same as being busy, but sometimes because of our love for Jesus, we get involved in something. And we, we take up an issue um, that he's laid on our hearts, but then it becomes our God. I'll give you a few examples. People who stand outside abortion centers hurling abuse at the woman coming in and out in the name of the Lord. It's not good. It's not good. We know it's not good. Now, it, it's a good issue. It, it's, it's something, you know, we, we believe, well, certainly I'm pro-life. We believe that um, the Lord knits us together in the womb. We, we want to be pro-life. We, we, don't want, um, we don't want women choosing to, to abort if, if, if they can avoid it. But sometimes for some people, it just becomes such an issue that actually they lose sight of God and it's just about stopping abortion at all costs. They forget to love the people that are in front of them. They forget Jesus' words and, and command to, to love our enemies even, to do good to those who persecute us. When I was leading that youth fellowship, um, one of the young people um, who came along, who, who wasn't a, a believer, I, I'm not entirely sure actually how she started coming along, but she started coming along. And she had taken herself off into town to buy something, not realizing that it was the day of, of Belfast Pride. But anyway, she went out, she went into the shop, she got what she needed. And as she was coming out of the shop, she saw a, a group of Christians protesting, hurling abuse at people who were parading, and actually throwing, throwing hardback Bibles at some of the people who were parading. And she came to youth fellowship the next night and she said, is that, is that what we're meant to do? Is that, is that the Christian response to this? And, and I said, no, no, definitely, definitely not. Sometimes because of our love for Jesus, we take up an issue and it's a good issue. It's maybe something that he has called us to stand firm on. He has commanded us clearly. But when it becomes our God, then, then things get all kinds of distorted. We need to be aware of the danger of losing the love we had at first. Now, I realize that I'm giving you extreme examples tonight. I do realize I'm doing that, and I'm doing it intentionally. But it happens so easily. Uh, one commentator, um, Earl Palmer, puts it um, like this, and, and I, I think this really sums it up. A man or a woman is first united with the Christian church because of having discovered and believed Jesus Christ and his love. Fair enough. After a few years of being a Christian, that person becomes a leader in the church with very happy responsibilities for the fellowship and heavy responsibilities for the fellowship. 
that happens. But something happens along the way. That person who, because of giftedness and hard work, stands at the vortex of church politics and decision-making, experiences a subtle shift in their style of life. That person is adrift as a disciple and finds himself or herself motivated and nourished by organization or controversy or ambition to hold power. The first love has been replaced while perhaps no one was aware of the replacement. It happened quietly. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. How can it happen to us? It happens. It happens to marriages. It happens to human friendships. It happens to the life of discipleship. That is the first warning. Do not let the wrong things become your God. The second warning is not unlike it. Do not let sin cloud your view of God. Because this issue of abandoning a first love is really an issue of sin. It's an issue of no longer obeying Jesus. Because Jesus commands us to, to love him. And when he says this, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And Jesus also told us when, speaking of the end times, that the first love some had for him would fade. In Matthew 24, he says this, you'll be handed over, persecuted, put to death, hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of iniquity, sin, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's the parable of the sower, isn't it? The, you know, the, 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 the seed, it, it shoots up, but in shallow soil or among thorns, it, it chokes, it's wilted, it's not fruitful. The picture, though, of being in, in love with the Lord has its roots in the Old Testament. I mean, very often Israel is spoken of as God's son, but more often than that, especially when they've been unfaithful to the Lord, it's spoken of as adultery. It's spoken of even in terms of prostitution. Some of the language is actually quite shocking. I'll just give you a few snippets. Here's um, what God says about Israel um, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go proclaim in the hearing of the Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. There's that phrase. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. But if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like someone in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. And he goes on, he says the same about Judah. Judah has seen the same. She's seen these adulteries. But she too, and I quote from Jeremiah 2 verse 7, she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. These are false idols. And she did not return with her whole heart to the Lord. There's a lot more um, could be said about that, a lot more in the Old Testament. The Lord takes our obedience very seriously. Shocking, shocking language about prostitution 
and about adultery, but that's how he sees our sin. And, that, and that's the image that he picks up for the church in Ephesus, right? That this church with this great heritage, this church, you know, Paul and John and whoever else, this church who are doing well, who are standing firm, who have their ducks in a row with their theology, um, who, who aren't giving in, you know, who are standing up for the right issues in the face of the Roman Empire, but they have become gods and they've lost their first love. But the good news is that there is a way back. Revelation 2 and 5. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If there's any doubt in anyone's mind that the Lord approves of Presbyterianism, there you have it. Three things we need to do and they even all begin with the letter R. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, we, we need to recognize and name our sin. The Lord isn't telling us to wallow in our sin. He, he's not saying this to make us feel you know, super guilty and, and put us into a terrible emotional state. Remember it. Name it for what it is. Then we need to repent. Repent means to completely turn around. Turn away from sin. Even turn away from activity in church. I know you think you couldn't do it, but if your relationship with the Lord is at stake, you need to turn away from it. Away from the stuff coming between yourself and the Lord. We need to obey him and not mindlessly do stuff in his name without actually paying attention to him. And then we need to redo the things we did at first. Your first love for Jesus. You maybe weren't so busy in church, you know. It was actually just about him. Pray to him, alone and with others. Search the Bible for all its riches and make that a priority. Praise him day and night. One thing's for sure, though, you won't reignite that love simply by going on doing the things that you're doing if this is an issue in your life. Because it's not an issue of activity or doctrine or of activism. It's an issue of true repentance. The Lord doesn't want more sacrifices. In fact, he says to the prophet Isaiah that they're an abomination to him. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and your assemblies, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. The Lord hates them. And yet, and yet he says to the people, if they turn, though their skins are like scarlet, their sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jesus warns Ephesus, therefore he warns us about making the wrong things our God, about activity without substance. He warns us against the sin that wanes our love for him. We're coming to the end. Is there a sin in your life right now? Maybe it's something major. Of course we all have sin in our life, but is there something major in your life right now? Or maybe it's even something secret that's just eating away at you. I know this is heavy. I know it's been heavy tonight. It's been longer than I meant for it to be. Adultery and prostitution, I know it's heavy, but it is meant to be because sin matters. It matters in individuals. It matters in the church. Jesus said that if Ephesus did not repent, he would remove their lamp from its stand. And the scariest thing about this passage is that if you go to Ephesus today, you will not find a church. I want to finish tonight, though, where we started our service in Isaiah 6. That was the year that King Uzziah died, um, relevant to us, I suppose, because the queen has just died. But Uzziah's death was a very different affair from Her Majesty's. You know, Uzziah had been a great king. He'd been very faithful. You can read all about it in Second Chronicles 26 if you want to. But it, it simply says that he, he was good. He did good in the eyes of the Lord. He took away all the idols. He, he did all the things that God, the Lord wanted him to do. 
but he didn't finish well. You know, Queen Elizabeth swore in or whatever she did with the new prime minister on Tuesday. Uzziah didn't end on such a high note. He went into the temple in his old age. He, he, he was proud, we're told. He went in where he shouldn't have gone, where only the priests were allowed to go. He offered incense, and, and when the priests challenged him, said, you can't be in there, he laughed at them. He became angry, and so the Lord gave him a skin disease. He, he, his skin became leprous, and he had to live in shame away from all the rest of the people for the rest of his days. He was still the king. But he was a king who was ashamed, a king who couldn't come into the temple anymore, a king who couldn't mix with other people because he was unclean. And so Israel is aware, Judah is aware of her sin. I think it's interesting that Isaiah says in that passage, you know, woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips. He realizes that as, as a prophet, he hasn't protected the king. The whole nation is in mourning because their, their, their king has been brought down, humbled by God, and now he has died in shame. If you read the, the, the chapter in Second uh, Chronicles, you'll find that he's not buried with his ancestors the way the rest of the kings were. The nation is ashamed. And in this year when the nation's at its lowest, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne with the seraphim, and one calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does Isaiah say? He says, Woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He realizes that he is sinful. Remembers, perhaps we might say, looking at it through the lens of Revelation, he remembers his sin. He's aware. He's aware that his mouth, as the prophet, didn't do its job. And if we're honest, as we come before the Lord, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a, a man of unclean lips, actions, whatever. But the seraph brings the coal and touches his lips and says, You have been made clean. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Jesus gives us that atonement. We're to remember the height from which we have fallen. We need to recognize our sin, we need to remember it, and then we need to repent to come to the Lord and to do the things that we did at first. It's only after this atonement that Isaiah can then go back and do the things he did at first. And I heard a voice saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. It's only after he's recognized his sin, after atonement has been made, that he can then turn and serve again. At the start of this church year, as you reflect maybe on how you serve the Lord, maybe you want to reflect on where you are with him, on who your God is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you so much that you have sent Jesus into the world to atone for all of our sin and all of our disgrace. And Lord, thank you that your arms are open wide. Lord, forgive those of us and who, who sin. Lord, we all sin. But Lord, we pray just particularly for those maybe tonight whose love has gone cold who sense that other things maybe have become their God. 
or where there is a, a, a sin in our life that is just blocking us from, from having that first love for you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, show us your grace that we can come and see our sin for what it is, that we can repent and then we can go back to that first love and walk with you all our days. For Jesus' sake, amen.